Uh, beloved, we're going to look at the rest of chapter 11 of Ecclesiastes this morning, and then I believe we'll probably have two studies left, chapter 12. Ecclesiastes 11, verse 7. Light is sweet, and it is pleasant for the eyes to see the sun. So if a person lives many years, let him rejoice in them all. But let him remember, the days of darkness will be many. All that comes is vanity. Rejoice, O young man, in your youth, and let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Walk in the ways of your heart and the sight of your eyes. But know that for all these things, God will bring you into judgment. Remove vexation from your heart and put away pain from your body, for youth and the dawn of life are vanity. Uh, in these final two chapters, the preacher, Koaleth, is, uh, Koaleth is uh, the Hebrew for, for preacher, the preacher. He, he's bringing his message to a close, and he's calling for action here in chapters 11 and 12. And what's in view is the uh, reality and inevitability of final judgment. If life is merely a brief existence under the sun, then it is vanity. It is vapor. It is futile. It is transitory. If there is no God, as Philip Ryken has pointed out, then there's no final judgment. Therefore, nothing matters. If there is a God who will judge the world, and there is, then everything matters. That happens to be the title of his commentary on Ecclesiastes. Everything matters. So here then, we, we see enthusiasm for living life from a God-centered, a theocentric perspective, a God-centered worldview. That's the message of the final two chapters. Enthusiasm for living life under your Creator. And, and consequently, we've seen the exhortation last week of, of bold enterprise, to venture boldly in this brief life. Look back at verse 1, if you will. We see an imperative. Cast your bread upon the waters, for you will find it after many days. So that, that's a command to, to send something forward for a particular purpose. It's not a random toss, just chucking something out there. He says, send this out with thoughtfulness, with purposeful intent. That's the idea. And this, the idea here is to send one's grain out on a ship. This was a bold enterprise. And the hope is to make a profit in trade. This was risky business. This was a risky venture. Very bold. But, you know, Koaleth is saying, look, if, if you're going to receive for your grain profit, if you're going to receive value, proceed, then you have to send it out. Okay, that's the metaphor. This is a venture of, of faith. A bold undertaking, trusting in the good providence of God. So essentially, the, the preacher is exhorting us to commit ourselves totally to the enterprise of serving God. Okay, while we're here dwelling okay, under heaven with a theocentric worldview, 
serve God. Life is short. There's no time for procrastination is what he's telling us. If you're going to serve the Lord, serve him fully. Because tomorrow may not come. Life is fleeting. Death is certain. So in other words, we're to invest in the kingdom, casting our bread on the waters, sending our grain out on, on, on ships, knowing that the return that God provides, whatever that is, far outweighs the sacrifice. So in verse 1, Koalath says, Solomon, don't play it safe, take risks. However, he also says we're to venture prudently. So venture boldly, but sensibly. Verse 2, give a portion to seven or even to eight, for you know not what disaster may happen on earth. In other words, don't commit all your bread or all your grain to one ship. Spread it out, he says, to seven or eight. Be sensible, but don't be so overly guarded, he says, that you never act. (laughs) Remember? Don't be so cautious that you never move. Verse 4, he who observes the wind will not sow. He who regards the clouds, he won't reap. So the illustration there is one who's continually consumed by potential hazards will never get up and make a move. So although we're to give consideration to surrounding conditions, okay, that's wise, if you spend all your time observing what may happen, contemplating, you know, when to act, you'll never act. Okay, so verse 6, he says, In the morning sow your seed, and at evening withhold not your hand. What God will do, we closed up last week with this, what God will do, you never know. But if you never, you'll never reap if you never sow, is the idea. So, uh, we concluded that there's great comfort in knowing that the duty is ours. The results, the consequences, it's the Lord's. So, we can rest in that fact. So, knowing that we're doing that which is our duty, there's no failure. And it reminds us that the the doctrine of the the all-controlling providence of God is never an excuse to exclude us from this joint venture. It's actually a requirement for us. So we mustn't allow what we don't know prohibit us from active engagement. And then, of course, he used that wonderful illustration in verse 5. He says, you do not know the way the Spirit comes to the bones in the womb of a woman with child, so you do not know the work of God who makes everything. So, in other words, God, who mysteriously knits together in the womb the very soul of the child, a child that was conceived by the man and his wife, co-venture, co-laborers, just as we cannot fathom that glorious, intimate work, neither can we know the providences of God. That's the idea. So, just as we do not abandon the enterprise of bearing children, because of lack of understanding and how God knits a soul in the very person of a child in the womb, uh, neither are we to abandon other enterprises of life because we don't understand the unknown providential will of God. That's the idea. So he says, look, as you're looking at all of these truths, 
that he's preached about venture into life boldly for the glory of God. So having looked at that command, this call for diligence, this call for persistent labor, uh, we see that there is no halfway approach of life in Ecclesiastes except for the fool. Except for the fool. So this is an invitation, as Philip Ryken has said, to to be venture capitalists for the kingdom of God. This... For the wise man, says Michael Eaton, is to invest everything he has in the life of faith. So now, building upon the idea of bold enterprise in living life for the glory of God, building upon that now is is a command for joyful living while we're here. Joyful living. And if you think about it, one of the fruits of the Spirit is is joy. One of the fruits of the Spirit is, is joy. Galatians 5, that is happiness, that is delight, that is pleasure. We are to be a joyous people, a joyful people, especially as, as a forgiven, faithful, faith-filled, faith is a gift, believing people. So as a blood-bought people especially, who, who are being transformed into the very image of our Savior, uh, we should of all people, be joyful. But oftentimes, unfortunately, Christians are portrayed as joyless and judgmental. Sour, doleful people who, who avoid pleasure at all cost. And that, unfortunately, is a gross uh, character of, of a Christian, and it's usually peddled on in the media. But it's, it's not true. It's unfortunate. But all that to say, God does not applaud joylessness. He doesn't even applaud superficial joy and happiness. When you read scriptures, you don't find it. The kind of joy that pleases God is heartfelt joy that is rooted in the deepest part of who we are. And that's the fact that we're in Him. So we should be joyful. In other words, there's nothing pious about living a joyless life. Nothing at all. A sour, soulless way of living. It's actually pathetic. Yet at the same time, we need not pretend that there are no difficulties in life. And Ecclesiastes does not shade the facts. If you haven't seen thus far, he, he, we, he does not shade the facts about life lived in a fallen world. Right Back in chapter 3, there is a season for everything. There's a time to mourn, there's a time to dance, there's a time to be born, there's a time to die. So there are seasons um, of life. But the truth here that, that helps unlock what we see here in chapter 11 is stated, I believe, in two phrases found in verse 9 and one in verse 10. And the first in verse, in verse 9 is to rejoice. It's another imperative. And then the second is verse 10, to remove vexation. Remove vexation. So rejoice, be happy, and banish anxiety. Remove vexation. In other words, don't so allow, don't don't allow uh, anxiety or worry to so grip you that it paralyzes you of of expressing or, or having any kind of joy. So if you want to toss anything, toss anxiety out. And live with assurance and live with conviction 
Um, vexation, anxiety undermines, undermines and prevents joyful living. So that, that's where we're going here in the next half hour. So biblical faithfulness, we see, is not characterized by a doleful view of life or, or a list of what we cannot do. You know, most unbelievers think Christianity is, you know, a bunch of stuff you can't do. <laughs> I thought you were a Christian. You can't, you know, do whatever that is. Instead, Christianity is liberty to be who God made us to be as image bearers of the Almighty and, and to delight in Him and in His creation. Along with a life of freedom, freedom to live a holy life. Amen? That's the freedom we have. So this next call for, for, for joyful living... What we see here is a call for um, joyful temperance. Okay, so you see um, joy governed by temperance. You notice here is, is joy, delight, happiness is one of the fruits of the spirit. So also another fruit of the spirit is self what control. Self control, another fruit of the spirit. So th- this shows us the balance of delighting in life in all the freedoms that we have under the rule and reign of God and not to abuse them. So this is joy mixed with temperance. Self, self-control that is governed by joy or joy that is governed by self-control. They go hand in hand. So while Ecclesiastes here is, is not a call to ignore or deny the real sufferings that there are in life, neither is it a call to escape pain by simply living for pleasure. Right? So we're going to be balanced here. We need to be balanced in our understanding. Self-control does not contradict joy. They go hand in hand, as we'll see. So verse 7 and 8, we see, Be joyful, since life is a gift. Okay? Find joy in the good days. We know not every day is good. Again, chapter 3, not every day is good in that bad things do happen. There are seasons for everything. And this joyful life, enjoying everything, is tempered by the fact that dark days will come. So there's temperance, okay? So here's life. Enjoy it. And remember, okay, don't live a doleful life now because remember, dark days are coming. Okay, so enjoy life. Verse 7, light is sweet, and it is pleasant for the eyes to see the sun. So if a person lives many years, let him rejoice in them all. But let him remember that the days of darkness will be many. All that comes, he says, is vanity. So light is sweet means that, that it's good to be alive. It's beautiful. It's exciting. It's enjoyable. Life is a gift. And remember, this is God's word instructing us here. Enjoy every day that you have. You know, thank God for the days that the sun shines. Last Monday on my day off was a day like this. It was like Santa Ana, warm. So I went on a motorcycle ride. I thought Christians can't ride motorcycles. <laughs> it was beautiful. And I, I, I was like, this, man, this is... And I was enjoying every moment. And you have to temper that 
If, 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 if you let vexation overtake you and you have no joy, temper that. Temper the reality of being joyful with the fact that dark days are coming. Now, dark days here, some think this to be talking about you know, old age. It could be. I think it's talking about death or perhaps even both, as we'll see. So we mustn't forget that, that death is coming. So... Life should be enjoyable. It should be exciting, especially while you're young. And, you know, a lot of this has to do, it's, it's geared towards speaking to the young, but it's not only to the young, because to be young at this time, for instance, uh, to, to bear the sword for Israel, you had to be 20. To enter into the priesthood, you were 30. Uh, you would start training for the priesthood at 25, and then the priest would retire at 50. We, we read this in Deuteronomy. But still, at 50, they were still able to uh, assist the other priests in the priesthood, which tells us that the young would be referred to as anyone from 20 to 50. So, in other words, this applies to all of us, not just the young, but especially the young, as we'll see, remember your Creator in the days of your youth. For when time comes for you to remember, it might be too late. So here, temper this reality by the fact that dark days are coming, and what's coming is vanity. We're temporal creatures. Life is beautiful, but it is indeed tainted by the fall. We've seen all these principles throughout our study. So the days of darkness, I think, is referring to the days spent in the grave. Spent in the grave. We we rejoice in light, knowing that death is coming. Life is a gift. Yes, it's on a fallen world. Nevertheless, enjoy it. You know, when you're young, you think you live forever. Remember that? <laughs> you think you have many, 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 many years ahead of you. Death is a foreign reality when you're 20, for, for most of us. And you don't realize that every moment you're drawing nearer and nearer to your final breath. We get older, things begin to to sag and contort. Years seem to pass by more rapidly, amen? We don't recover from illnesses or injuries as quickly as we used to. And you start attending funerals not of your grandparents, but of your peers, So death then begins to move from theory to reality. The older you get, we will face it. So light is sweet, he says. That is, life is sweet, specifically the good life. Make the most of the good days God gives us. So this is a picture of the way life is intended to be as given by God. Live it. Enjoy it. So, as life is filled with good things, one of the good pleasures of life is light itself. You know when it's cloudy, you look at the ocean, it's gray. When the sun's out, colors pop. Green is deep. The sea is blue. Light is is a joy. Compare that to being in a pitch black room. Or if you've ever been in a cave and they turn the lights off and you're there and anxiety starts to build up after a minute because it's so dark. And we want the light. Light breaks through. It's delightful. After a week of cloudiness, 
especially if you live in Seattle, months of cloudiness and the sun comes out. It's just it's a joy. It's a pleasant thing. That, that's the picture. It's pleasant to the eyes. So lawful pleasures are to be indulged in, but not overindulged. Fine food is good, amen? Fine food is a gift. We've read that. Eat your food, drink your wine, enjoy life with your wife. Throughout Ecclesiastes, we've seen that. But if we gorge ourselves, you feel sick, and you forego the pleasure. Think of Thanksgiving. I've eaten such good food. My wife's a great cook. Eat good food, eat too much. Says, well, that was good, but I don't feel so good. Overindulgence. So the, pre- the preacher here exhorts us here in a twofold manner. Two important verbs here that we see. Number one, rejoice. Number two, remember. We're to rejoice in the years of life we do have, verse 8a. So the fact that we're going to die is not meant to, damp- to damper life that we do have here now, but to do just the opposite, enjoy it. Back in chapter 3, verse 13. Called to eat, drink, rejoice in your labor as it is God's gift to you. Chapter 9, verse 9. Life with your spouse, whom you love, is is also a precious thing. It's to be treasured. Now, we know that life, uh, that Scripture tells us, it describes that life in heaven is far more wonderful than life is here. It's far more wonderful than we can even imagine. But even so, we're not told to, that, that, that life here now is worthless. It's worth something. The full witness of Scripture that tell, tells us that to depart this life and be with Christ is far better, Philippians 1.23, but even so, joys of this life are not to be despised. Amen? Notice also the hypothetical here in verse, in verse 8. If, if a person lives many years, let him rejoice in them all. Let him remember, here's the temperance, days of darkness will be many. There's no promise that we're going to live many years. If we do, the call is to rejoice in them. Verse 8b, but, but or yet, let him remember... Remember that the days of darkness will be many. All that comes is vanity. So to remember here is, a, is, is, is to call to mind. Call something to mind that, that affects your present feelings and reality. Call to mind. It's not a mere intellectual exercise he's talking about. Bring it to mind that is certain truths in this life about which you are to act upon. In the midst of rejoicing, remember, rejoice. In the midst of rejoicing, remember, there have been and there will be dark days. And we're going to see what's tied to this. This is don't let this life bring you down. Now, days of darkness can also refer to hard, hardship. Those days that aren't desirable. Days that aren't good, days of sorrow, days of, of sickness, days of you know, physical and intellectual failure and ultimate death. That's why I think they're all connected, actually. Dark days. 
Matthew Henry comments on this text. He says this, and I quote, Notwithstanding the long continuance of life and the many comforts of it, yet we must remember the days of darkness because those will certainly come and they will come with much the less terror if we have thought of them before. End quote. If we're unprepared to meet our Creator, death comes as a terror to us. If we think of our death, realize our sin, turn to the Creator who is Redeemer, we'll not be afraid. There's another way to see this, very important. So the exhortation is to you know, take time, enjoy life, rejoice in each day. After all, this is the day the Lord has made. We shall rejoice, be glad in it, not sour. So a bed of depression, a life of disillusionment, which we'll look at later, must be tossed aside. Or you will not be able to enjoy life. So verse 9, rejoice, O young man, in your youth. And let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Walk in the ways of your heart and the sight of your eyes, but know that for all these things, God will bring you into judgment. So here... Again, a command to rejoice, take pleasure, take pleasure, he says, in this stage of life. Rejoice, be glad in it. Rejoice in your strength as a young man. Rejoice in your vigor as a young man, in your vitality that marks you as a young man. Apply it, use it now, walk in it in the fullest sense. That's the command. Life is fleeting. This life shall pass. And before you realize it, you'll be saying, I can't do what I used to be able to do. Amen? Those of us who participate in sports, you realize you can't do it like you used to be able to do it. So while you're young and you have your vitality and you have your vigor, enjoy it because it's not going to last. <laughs> Notice here he says, uh, let your heart cheer you. Heart refers to the center or the core of the man. This is the seat of your thinking. This is the seat of your emotion. This is the mode of his intellect, the core of who you are. So here it probably has to do with the motivation of your heart. This is what drives you. This is the power of thought. This is motivation for for life. What is your motivation in life? He says, let your heart, he says, cheer you. So let the core of your being cheer you. That means cause you to. Let it cause you to, to do good, to, to carry out that desire. That's the command. Most people have an inward desire to succeed, right? Most young people, most, and they should, have, have this, this, this vigor to, to achieve. To, they set goal, goals and they want to reach those goals. They have dreams. They have ideas. He says, don't merely think about these things. He says, live them out. Live them out. Now, he, again, he's not saying, hey, go see, sow wild oats for 40 years, you know, and, and then give yourself to God. Now, many people do think that way, amen? And when they come to their senses, it's too late. So he's not saying that. In short, Coleth is applauding 
true liberty. This is not freedom to fulfill every inward desire because if the desire is sinful, that's slavery. Amen? So again, context. You know, to rejoice in what the Lord forbids is sin. To take joy in what he approves of, it brings him glory and you the joy that he's talking about. One commentator said this, Joy was created to dance with goodness, not to dance alone. Joy doesn't dance alone. Joy dances with goodness. Augustine said, love God and do whatever you please. Love God and do as you please. To to love him is to honor him. And in pleasing him, we find pleasure. And with that pleasure comes this joy that he's commanding us to have. So liberty that brings joy is freedom to do that which is glorifying to God. That's a freedom unbelievers do not have. They do not have it. Do what you you want in the presence of God for the glory of God, and you'll be joyful. Or you should be, if you see things correctly. So let that, he says, let that be the way of your heart. Let that be your charge. Let that be your driving motivation. So as as the preacher commands joy to be found in doing that which the Lord considers good, it's confirmed in his caution here. That God's going to bring all your rejoicing into judgment at the end of verse 9. Know that for all these things, God will bring you into judgment. So as we're responsible and accountable to God for what we do, that is responsible pleasure, joy governed by self-control, or self-control governed by joy that's glorifying to God, things that are glorifying to God. It's not a license to squander our abilities or our bodies or to exploit other people. Paul said to Timothy in 2 Timothy 2, flee youthful passions. Pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. So youthful passions uh, or youthful lusts um, often include pride, power, wealth, jealousy, a self-assertive attitude, youthful us. An argumentative spirit. How many young men are foolish as regards arguing about everything in their zeal? And then, of course, illicit sexual desires. Flee them, Paul says. Now, it's also interesting. Some commentators I've read, they look at this section about coming into the judgment of God And some have pointed out this theme of judgment isn't here merely to temper our joy, but also, as Sidney Gray-Danis points out, he said the teacher is saying that God will judge us also to see whether or not we have sufficiently enjoyed his gifts. That's very interesting. And then he cites a passage from the Talmud. 
commentary on the Hebrew law. Quote, everyone must give an account before God of all the good things one saw in life and did not enjoy. It's interesting. Okay, so all that said, okay, bold enterprise, joyful living, all of that, this type of joy, a bold venture in this life, living life for the glory of God fully, as fully as we're able, this type of joy cannot exist with vexation of heart. Verse 10. Remove vexation from your heart. Another command. Cast your bread. That's an imperative. Rejoice. That's an imperative. And here, remove vexation. Another imperative. And put away pain from your body for youth... And the dawn of life are vanity. So put away pain. That is, avoid pain and misery. Avoid pain and misery, for there will come a time where it will no longer be avoidable. <laughs> like when you, those of you who have arthritis, or those of us who have arthritis, right? Before you know it, the dawn of life turns into the dusk of life. Very short. Charles Bridges says this in his old commentary on that. They're both linked together. Evil brings sorrow both to body and to soul. That's the way he interprets this part. And he said this, Youth is vanity because youth are often trifling in serious things and serious in trifles. Serious about trivial things. Young people. Now, think about this. From, from, from the, the view that Bridges sees this, and I was thinking about this, vexation of heart and pain of the body that is described by King David when he went an entire year without repenting and confessing of his sin with Bathsheba. And he penned Psalm 32. And you know, you remember what he said there. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. All his kingly vitality, in other words, was quenched because of this unrepentant, unconfessed sin. As God's hand was heavy upon him, it just dried up like the summer heat. That type of pain can be avoided. (laughs) Amen? That can be avoided by God's people. But, that being said, I think the idea being conveyed here by the preacher is, is this. And that is to keep cynicism from taking root in your heart. That will kill joy. Michael Eaton and Derek Kidner say this. A vexation is any problem that causes us worry and concern that angers, grieves, or irritates. Next quote. It is the bitterness provoked by a hard and disappointing world. 
And I think that's more in what's a view here in context to everything we've seen in Ecclesiastes. That, I think, is more of the flow. Although what Bridges points out is absolutely true. Principle's true. I think the context here has to do with keeping cynicism from gripping your heart because it will kill joy. In other words, never become so jaded that we become blind to the joys that are ours in this life as a gift from God. So we must eradicate, he says, vexation. Remove it in order to enjoy God's gift and in order to delight in others who are gifted by God. How many of us would testify to being anxiety-free? Worry-free. So this is really a call for mental and physical health while you live. You know, certain disappointments in life can lead to discouragement. Amen? Okay, we're disappointed, we're discouraged. If discouragement is not put into check, it will lead to disillusionment. Well, this person said this. Well, that's not what they meant. Oh, yes, they did. And then we say, this happened here, and this, and you're totally disillusioned. And then that leads to the temptation of depression. As depression is initiated by feeling sorry for ourselves. So in order to remove vexation, we have to start by stopping feeling sorry for ourselves. So rather than thinking on things that go wrong, Koalath is really saying you have to think on your blessings. And he's going to tell young people next week, remember your creator in the days of your youth before the evil days come in the years draw near to which you will say, I have no pleasure in them. If you don't get this while you're young, you're going to be like those old people who are always complaining about everything. So you go to the turkey dinner, you go to Christmas, and you know everyone's like, man, yeah, I have this pain in my back, or I got compl- everything. Paul, in chains and prison, gives us the best remedy for this kind of vexation. He said it's prayer. Step one, prayer. He says, as he's locked up in prison, (laughs) rejoice in the Lord how often? Always, again, I'm telling you, again, Paul says, again, now I'm not saying this is Paul, again, this is applicable to me too, I say rejoice. Philippians 4, 5, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious or do not be vexed about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, I believe if you're not thankful as a Christian, if you're not thankful, you'll have no joy. Vexation will grip you. Vexation will choke out joy. 
Vexation, anxiety puts a stranglehold on people. It paralyzes you from enjoying life. You're a worry wart. (laughs) With thanksgiving, let your requests be made known, known to God and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. It guards your heart from vexation. It guards your heart from bitterness. It guards your heart from resentment and from feeling sorry for yourself. Most of my problems come when I feel sorry for myself. Well, that's enough for today. Next time he continues in the same vein, again, remember your creator. Notice the preacher doesn't say remember God, but your creator. And obviously, God is our creator, but that word reminds us of the one who's given us everything our creator. Remember him in order to truly enjoy this life that is indeed fleeting. We're very forgetful people. We're very forgetful, so we must continually be reminded of these things. So there he says, first word, chapter 12, verse 1, remember. We'll look at that next week. Amen? Amen.